everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels Voices and our series on women leaders. I'm Ilana Betel, I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with women who are leading and shaping the world in many ways and fields. It being a new year, we're in the season of summaries and predictions, and this podcast never shirks a seasonal challenge. To help in this task, I'm joined by my friend, colleague, and co-producer and creator of this podcast, the one and only Florence Ferrando, seasoned Brussels consultant in all matters digital and technological, and a member of the Wise Brussels Steering Committee. Joining her is a familiar guest, the excellent Pauline Massal, partner in Avisa Partners, and also a member of the Wise Brussels Steering Committee. Welcome, ladies. We should probably start by noting what a difference a month makes. We first got together to reflect on this podcast in mid-December. It was at that point the coldest week in the year. A good slice of our conversation focused on dire predictions of energy difficulties and food shortages. Since then, we've experienced one of the warmest New Year's on record, and a major concern is the effect of this heat on agriculture and the absence of snow for skiing. Some things have stayed the same or worse. The war in Ukraine, world food shortages and others. We'll have a go at a short discussion on what we consider the salient points in also what we consider this rather short bonus episode of the podcast. Ladies, lovely to see you again. Lovely to be with you guys. Yeah, it's a pleasure as well. As I was saying, when we last met each other, apart from being very tired because it was the end of a very long, unexpected year, and we noted at the beginning of 2022, our major expectations were the leftovers of COVID and arguments maybe over world order, maybe not. And then came the war in Ukraine, which upended everything. We felt very strongly that politicians weren't rising to the challenge and that this would be a very big problem in 2023. Pauline, do you think that is still the case? Well, I'm struck by, uh, despite a number of initiatives, by how out of touch uh, the majority of political leaders still seem to be. Um, We've seen some initiatives uh, at national level, some initiatives at EU level, um, but there seems to be a lack of understanding of what the man on the street um, is really going through. And that does not bode well for the future, in my mind. Can you give us an example or two of what you mean? That's quite general, but not that I'm disagreeing, but in what way do you feel this inadequacy? Some examples include the lack of a harmonised response to the rise in energy costs, which of course is a direct consequence of the war in Ukraine, but we have not seen the same level of support to individual families' um, rising costs in uh, across the EU. I take the example of my home country, France, and of my new home country, my host country, Belgium. Um, I pay, I would say, five to ten times what friends and family pay back in France. Uh, I'm not even going to go into the UK, of course, no longer an EU member, but certainly a NATO nation. Um, And again, there we're seeing a vastly different daily cost for citizens when it comes to energy. This worries me not only because of the social uh, impact that it's going to have, we're already seeing massive strikes across the UK, um, but it also has a very real potential impact on the solidarity among NATO allies and EU allies when it comes to the war in Ukraine. 
Interesting. Um, again, I'm not necessarily disagreeing. Florence, do you have a position on this? I would say on the, really on the challenges of uh, political uh, leadership. I would say I, I agree as well with Pauline on many things she say. And I think what is really missing right now is the capacity of leaders to go beyond managing crisis and responses to crisis immediately and really thinking about more long-term thinking outside of the box to not just only aiming to go back to the stage before the crisis, but also maybe to adjust and maybe change some perception on how our society should work as well. And do you think this is a generational perception? I remember um, when we were talking a month ago, you had a very strong sense as the youngest member of this uh, little collective that um, your generation, which is generation X, Y, Z, A, B, C, and D, um, I never quite work out the generations, um, have, have had it more difficult than other generations. Do you want to explain that? Uh, yeah, so I think I was a little bit more radical in December uh, on points, but still, as I probably say it from what I remember in December, I think like every generation has to deal with its own issue, problematic trends and um, living condition, if I can say so, being societal, economical, political, etc. plus in an international uh, environment as well. Um, but I think that the generation, younger generation, B, Z, uh, W, X, Y, whatever, um, have, I think, less and less opportunity uh, right now and in recent years as well, because I already f uh, think myself uh, that I was more privileged in my education, my access to job opportunity, and it was already challenging uh, by the 2008 uh financial crisis, uh, the COVID uh, world as well. And I didn't do my study uh, when uh, it was COVID the pandemic. So I can't imagine for, your, for the student of uh, these years, how entering the professional world, how to access to resource, to funds and etc. to pursue their ambition, dreams will be uh, that easy. And moreover, uh, we are not so much optimist on the future and immediate future as well, since we see this political failure because we see more and more uh, speeches about the great principle we should have about, you know, work harder, earn more, uh, have a lot of freedoms and a lot of opportunities. And still uh, we see concrete example of nonsense between the political speeches we have and what's really going on in reality. Pauline, what would you expect from politicians this year, since we're looking ahead, not looking back? To be honest, I think I'd expect what I've always expected, which is uh, trying to win the next election. Um, the question is um, what kind of answers they'll be able to provide and what they're going to seize as priorities. I've never been a massive optimist when it comes to our political leaders. Um, I certainly don't think, I mean, I think this is something we, we've discussed often. Um, there is a crisis of political leadership, um, I'd say in Europe, but actually potentially globally. And I'm, I'm not sure that the answers we're likely to see will really hit the nail on the head. Um, in all fairness, some issues are beyond national responses. So it what I would hope is for leaders to be able to 
look beyond their borders to try and create consensus on issues that do not depend only on a national response, um, but also listen to what their peoples need um, and want. And so I think the key things we're going to see are, are, are things to combat inflation, um, hopefully some preemptive action when it comes to the job market, because right now we all know it's difficult to hire, but we're already seeing the first signs of the economic impact of the last six to 12 months. And so hopefully seeing some responses also on dire poverty, which is going to, already is, in fact, uh, a rising problem. So what you're basically hoping for in so many ways is that politicians wake up and uh, be honest with their electorates and say, hey, we belong to all of these organisations, not just to annoy people or to take away national identity, which membership of an organisation doesn't necessarily do, but because we actually need to work together in this very globalised, complicated, interwoven world. Do you think politicians are up to that? Well, whether they're up to it or, or, or not is one factor, but the other is, are electorates ready to hear that? And are they ready to accept the complexity of these answers and not have what is really a human response, which is to go for the simple answer? Simplicity is a human instinct, really. Um, and so it has an impact on electorates and on elections. Well, here's a prediction. I don't think we're going to get uh, politicians being very honest with their electorates yet again, because following on exactly from what you're saying, you first need the politician to lay the ground with the electorate to explain how complex everything is and admit that everything is complex and therefore you need a complex solution and not the simple solution. So let's call that prediction number one, business as usual in politics. Are we agreed on that? Agreed and yet... It's not been business as usual in terms of world events. And so at some point we may, and here's the optimist coming back out, we may see an extraordinary response. One could argue that we've already seen several extraordinary responses. Um, I mean, it took a hell of a long time to get there, but the COVID, the European COVID response at the end of the day ended up happening. The fact that EU countries are supplying arms to Ukraine is certainly something that would have been completely unthinkable as EU members, uh, that would have been unthinkable 10 years ago. Um, so there are certain signs that things can happen when they really need to happen. But of course, the EU being the EU, they take a long time to happen. And whether those moves end up being popular in the long run is a different matter. That could very well be. Okay. Moving on to area number two, which is what caused a lot of the political problems this year, um, which is, of course, the war in Ukraine. Let's look at the, the war, not so much, oh my God, it started, though, as I said, 24th of February was a great surprise to all of us. But actually, move again to the generational impact, because Florence, when we were discussing this a month ago, you came up with an extremely interesting um interpretation of how the war is difficult for your generation as consumers of digital and cyber um, means. Could you redress that? Because it was really interesting. Yeah, of course. So I think uh, the start of the war in, in Ukraine uh, really marked a change in terms of conception of social media for lots of uh, 
different generation as well, but also for the younger generation who are more addicted and on this uh, mobile phone and social media. We were exposed to a lot of content about the war, from very graphic content to a lot of information in general, not filter, verify, not sources for, or partially sources, if I can say so. Uh, so it was really a lot of information, plus we know how social media uh, platform and application are built. They are very efficient algorithms to make you scroll down and down and down into this kind of content and uh, recommend you more of this type of content as well. So it really depends you uh, on proper media and digital content consumption. And it leads to, I think, a lot of mixed feelings uh, depending on the person and on the user. Real or not, the content you see, your brain see, see it and digest it. So at one point, you can't unsee something or you can't unread something. You have to debunk it maybe, to double check maybe, but it comes first into your brain and you uh, digest this information or this data at one point. So um, I think it can really provide a lot of mixed feelings between uh, things very empathic about what is going on, getting informed, getting disinformed, receive propaganda from one side or the other as well. And it's quite difficult as well. Uh, I think it emphasizes as well the critical needs to double check everything you see online. So what we're really talking about is the immediacy of images, footage, information, both in that it can be very graphic and that you don't really know if it's real or not. Exactly. And it can lead to really have a lot of empathy to uh, what you see, uh, to distrust what you see as well. It can have an impact at one point with your mental brain because we know even without warfare or uh, violent content, Social media have an impact on mental health of everyone, especially the youngest one as well. But to everyone, he also tricks some stuff in our brains as well uh, that make us digest information in another way and also put in uh, our perspective and maybe our critical spirit into challenges as well. And do you think this is driving younger people away from understanding difficult situations like war or starvation? Or do you think it's affecting them in other ways? I think it really depends because it is one aspect is really what you consume online, but it also depends where you, what is your education, what is your background, what are your system of being, value and etc. So it can either put you away of such political, international, important topics and looking at what's really going on in the world and just focus on stupid things, I would say, and memes, or it can also enable you to have access to a lot of information. But it means as well, I think, some work in general and some also accountants and some self-awareness of what you really consume as well and how what you consume online can affect your perspective on any kind of topic as well. Very interesting. Pauline, do you think that we're seeing this as part of uh, an overall changing um, digital landscape? I mean, who'd have thought we would mention the word or the name Elon Musk in this uh, um, podcast? But in many ways, events at Twitter last year has shaken up um, at least the perception of the digital landscape. And um, going forward, taking the some of the issues raised by Florence, do you think that 
people will leave Twitter? Do you think there's going to be a shift away from digital, especially as relates to news consumption? Or is it all going to be a blip and we'll all move on somewhere else? Um, without judging the Twitter issue as a blip or not, I don't think people will move away from consuming news online on digital platforms. That trend in my mind is here to stay. But there's good and bad contents online. I mean, there's lighthearted contents, uh, as Florence was mentioning, but there's also very serious analysis out there. And we shouldn't downplay the importance of the internet in bringing a whole variety of sources and making them available to the greater public. I'll go back to our earlier argument about simplicity and the search for simplicity and simple answers being a human instinct. I work 14 hour days, I have three kids, I have two jobs. Do I have the time to go and fact check every news I read? Do I have the time and do I take the time to go and do opposition research for everything I read? That's a very real question, but I don't think it's a new one. What's new is the amount of information that's available. What's not new, is human desire, will, uh, instinct to, to go and look for things. I think some people always have gone and looked beyond the newspaper headline. Others haven't. Okay, so shall we say prediction number two for 2023 is that we'll all carry on consuming everything digital and just hope that nobody lies to us too much? Is that a fair prediction? That's a fair prediction, and let's hope that Good journalism can continues. Yeah, and let's look after also of what uh, the actually a digital platform and media are uh, putting into place as well to ensure more trustable uh, information because there is always policy involving depending on the social media and also how the maybe some technology progresses and advances can also lead to a safer. Uh, and more trustable uh, online space when it comes to news and uh, topics around the world. Very well put, Florence. Thank you. This being a short bonus episode, we're going to move on to our third very simple issue, possibly the last one, and that's the global order. It won't take very long to deal with, I'm sure, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. Doubtless. <laughs> An easy question. We love those. But nonetheless, clearly 2022 saw uh, a massive uproot of a lot of the assumptions that underpinned the global order, for better or for ill. Some of them had already been happening for a long time, but we chose not to look at them. We being the liberal West democracies, you name it. Some of them began to be upended because of COVID and the inability to um, move about, but also the clear dependencies we all had on international trade, which came to a halt for certain parts of um, the coronavirus period. And part of them was indeed a very bold, revolting, aggressive war against Ukraine, which has pitted part of the world against another part of the world and has led to many deaths in Ukraine, the destruction, physical destruction of a state and a lot of anger on all sides. Are we going to carry on with that this year or is there going to be a magic solution? Pauline? 
I've always been a big believer in magic solutions. Oddly enough, I've spent the last 40 odd years being disappointed. I know it's weird. Um, no, certainly I think we're in between eras. I don't know how the dust will settle yet. I think a lot will depend on the outcome of the Ukraine conflict, which is going to have massive impact regardless of who wins. Because we're all hoping, of course, for Ukraine to come out on top of this conflict. Whether they do or not, it's going to have irreversible consequences for Europe, for the transatlantic relation and for the world. We shouldn't forget how countries outside the transatlantic space are reacting to this or not reacting to this, in fact. And certainly it's going to have an impact on global relations and the global power balance. I'm concerned that we shouldn't forget about other looming conflicts. I mean, we've all seen what's happening in the Balkans and are looking at that with some concern. We shouldn't disregard ongoing tensions in the Middle East and in Africa and how these are being influenced and impacted by some of the players in the current war. So certainly uh, it's going to be an interesting year for international relations observers. Um, how we will, what state of the world will be in at the end of this year, I don't know yet. Sorry. That's not very useful for a prediction. <sighs> My crystal ball is broken, it just fell on the floor. A very good time to break it is January. Florence. I think the polling reflection on that was really interesting and food for thought as well. Uh, we say as well that I'm not so much optimistic on what's going to go on uh, this year with the Ukraine conflict and how it's going to impact more and or less or in different way uh, the international system and the global uh, system as well. Uh, for sure, we saw that the economic impact were really huge for everyone uh, because of the global market we have and all the uh, interconnection commercial and financial one we have uh, across continents yet there could be so many possibilities of how the conflict end up if it end up this year so it could be frozen conflict it can be solved by uh, the victory of one uh, one side which one will I think uh, the impact uh, in really different way, uh, Europe, but also the rest of the world for in different aspects, being the respect of international law, of warfare laws uh, and rules, uh, being economic, financial, uh, any sustainability of the supply chain, being on materials, being on food, on water and this kind of thing. Uh, I think it will have a lot more side effects for at the global uh, scale that we already experienced uh, in 2022. I think both of you have got it on the nail. What I would add probably is this. Whatever we call the international system, which is one that had its roots in the post-First World War era and came to fruition in the post-Second World War era, is possibly coming to an end. The UN Um, system may survive, but the United Nations itself, and especially the Security Council, is blocked. Um, a lot of the agencies are incredibly important and incredibly useful, 
without, for example, the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the UNHCR, or the World Food Programme, or the World Trade Organization, which is broken too, by the way, um, we would find it extremely difficult to cooperate and collaborate. My prediction is that the attempt of uh, Russia to completely break the system and turn it into even more meaningless than it potentially is will fail. It will fail because at the end of the day, even countries benefiting from this breakdown, for example, like India, which feels that it's um, very good for it to get a a place at the table, or uh, Brazil, possibly under Lula, will emerge in a different way. Everybody actually does want some form of rules-based or international system. Other than um, potentially Putin and his um, cohorts, most countries, and I include China in that, want some rules. They want to know how it's working and who it's working for and where it's working. So I predict that this year will be the beginning of some kind of new attempt. I don't think we'll see it by the end of the year, but I think that the international system will have um, new life at least attempted to be flogged into it in one way or another. So that's predictions number three. To round this off, what is the one good thing that will happen either to you or to the world in 2023? Florence. So I think for this uh, year, I'm still in holidays. I'm just going back to work on Monday. So I think I'm still a bit in the um, glitter and everything is going well uh, in my life for the moment. Uh, but still, it's a little bit uh, great days, I think. And it feels a little bit around me, a little bit uh, hangover around Brussels to go back to work and to start this new year because it doesn't bring so much um Hope, uh, optimist, maybe than previous years, I would say. Um, so I hope like one good thing for this year is that uh, it will bring uh, more on the individual level, uh, more happiness and joy and less worry, I would say, and less anxiety of, about the uncertainty of the life we're living and what's going to be the next crisis, because there is always a crisis coming up. Pauline? As for me, well, um, so I'm going to go with Florence in hoping for a year of uh, stability and less crises. Uh, But more importantly, I'm looking forward to a year of interesting exchanges um, of thinking and reflecting with people whom I don't necessarily agree with and finding a way to at least hear what they're saying. And if not agree, certainly use it to enrich my perspective. Very impressive, both of you. My good wish for this year, possible prediction, is actually in the manner of never waste a crisis. I do hope for new um, thoughts, new capabilities in not just the EU, but across the world, uh, that people use these crises that we've been living through to start shaping a new and better world. As we've just said, I think it was Pauline who pointed out that we're between eras. So this is the time to think about how the new era should look. On a more personal basis, I'm looking forward to going on holiday. I didn't go on a good holiday last year. So this is going to be a year in which hopefully I get to go on holiday. So I think that um, having skirted through the year in such a clear and wonderful way, it is time for us to say goodbye. 
That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to Florence Ferrando and Pauline Massel. Keep listening to our conversations and support us with a subscription on your podcast platform. Leave us a like, five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And of course, add to the conversation with your comments. We're on all media as Wise Brussels. So reach out on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel, and we'll be back very soon with another great conversation. Have a great 2023, one and all.